chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. I already know that Peter's going to like this message. Because I started in the right place, he would say. But you know, this morning I, I just sense that... Just to look for look at the life of Sarah a little bit. But as we look at this story, and this might be a familiar story to some, or perhaps you have no idea who this lady is, I think there's some common experiences uh, that we can draw from, that you ladies can, can identify with in your experience, in your life, in that God gives us promises in our lives. We see that from Scripture. His promises are all over the Bible. That's why we always want to read the Bible so we can become aware and familiar, not casual, but familiar with the promises of God so we know what God wants to accomplish and see us to and see us through in fulfilling those promises in our lives. But when we get to Sarah, we understand and see that there's a little bit of a delay in the fulfillment of the promise. And I think this morning the Lord would want us just to take some opportunity to look at that and investigate our own hearts and our own lives to what this is all about. But you know, the, the, the name Sarah means princess. And if you don't know this, I have five daughters. And that's a lot. And I love it. Always. Somebody again asked me this morning, how does it feel to be around all these ladies? Because it feels like home. Because it's put them around <laughs> all the time. But there, in my home with five daughters, princessness has a big place. From movies to a dress-up box that we have upstairs that has every sort of princess outfit in there. And it is something for the girls. They, they will enjoy, especially when people come over, their friends come over. It's let's go play dress up. And somebody's going to be in a wedding gown. Somebody's going to be in a princess outfit. And it's usually multiple ones. And, they're, and they all would gather around and have a coronation experience. They even actually conducted a wedding in, in the upstairs of my house. And, and Beth married Seth Collins. I don't know if y'all knew that. And Sophie performed the ceremony. So, <laughs> got home that night, heard about the story, and I said, Beth, is that dinner? You married Seth today? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure it's been your experience, maybe, as you were growing up, the excitement of what princess is all about. And the excitement of, of maybe looking toward your wedding day and planning that out and, and the experience of that possibly. And then daughters and granddaughters and you, you're seeing the princess thing. Of course, that might create bitterness for some. We have a movie called The Little Princess. And in watching that, here this, this one little girl has been told by her father she's a princess and has been doted over and, and the father you can tell is cherishing his daughter his wife died it's, it's what he has in her and he, if I remember the story correctly he goes off to war and gets hurt he's got amnesia doesn't remember that he's got a daughter and she gets put in an orphanage and she is now explaining to everybody else that she's a princess and everybody else is a princess too all the other girls she tells them stories and the the lady who's in charge of the orphanage just hates it and just is very spiteful toward this little girl for telling everybody she's a princess. And at one point in the movie, the little girl looks at the lady and says, weren't you, didn't your dad call you a princess? And you can see the, the angst in this woman because in what you're filling in is she's never been treated like a princess. She's never been told she's a princess and she's got this anger in her and especially directed toward this little girl who wants everybody to be a princess. But as we look at Sarah's story, what we're looking at is a bit of a coronation because she is by her name princess. But we're going to see later on that she goes. And if you're familiar with the story, she goes from the name Sarai, Sarai, a lot of people say Sarai to Sarah. Sarai means princess. Sarah means princess. But there was something else that took place there that I think we're going to find out through 
the delay of a fulfilled promise that becomes Sarah's coronation, where she gets a promise herself that she indeed will have a son. It takes a long time to get to that place, but we find in Hebrews 11, 11 that that Sarah looked, she, even though had no child, she believed the one who promised. She looked beyond the promise and was able to see the God of the promise. And therefore, she is credited as a hero of faith. This Sarah. So let's catch up to the story a little bit before Genesis chapter 15. We have Sarai living with her husband Abram in Mesopotamia. This is about it's a little over 2,000 years before Christ. And here they are uh, idol worshippers to the hilt. They, they have every sort of idol in Ur where they move from. Well, Abram's father has them all move up to Haran. And they're in Haran living there for a little while. And Abram's father... Terah dies, and so then they're sitting there just having their life. And one day, Sarai's husband comes home and says, Oh, hon, uh, I heard from God today. We're supposed to leave here and go somewhere. She says, Which God? Uh, He says he's the only one. What do you mean the only one? Where are we going? I don't know. Um, And he also said he'd make of me a great nation. Abram, we got no kids. Who's this God? Where are we going? We ain't got any kids. You're 75, I'm 65. What's going on here? That's real, isn't it? It's not just this floaty, oh, and so then Abram and Sarai went to live in the place that God would show them. This is real life. This is something. Here is this Sarai who's going, what is going on here? And what has happened to my husband? He's flipped. Something's not right. Something. Let me pray to my other gods. Hopefully they'll intervene here. This is. But we find out. We find out in First Peter chapter 3, we find out that this Sarai submitted to her husband, calling him Lord, Master. She says to him, Master, I'll go. So, following her husband, submitting to her husband, she goes and follows him, and he doesn't know where he's going. And the wives know what it's like to be with a guy who doesn't know where he's going. He probably thought he knew where he was going, but he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't want to hear anything about it from anybody in the car, because he knows where he's going. No maps, no asking for directions. Can you imagine your husband pull out? God's going to show me where to go, hon. I don't need to listen to you. (laughs) Nah, it wouldn't fly, would it? She goes with him, surrounded by the insecurity of all that's happening around her. And then they have received a promise from God. This is Genesis chapter 12. They've received a promise. They're going. Uh, God's initiated. Abram has said, let's go. She follows. And then they hit, reach a famine in the place that, that, uh, of Canaan where they were. They reach uh, there. There's a famine. So they decide to go down to Egypt. And then Abram says to Sarai, uh, let's let them know that you're not my wife because you're beautiful in appearance. And the Pharaoh is going to want to take you as his wife. And she goes along with this. And God, remember, has to intervene in that. Gives the Pharaoh a dream and says, what are you doing? This, this chick's your wife. And I was going to take her to be one of mine. And okay, God rescues them. They go. But I would want to say this. She was 65 years old, at least. When she went down to Egypt and she was beautiful in appearance and the Pharaoh did want to take her to be his wife. I'm saying that for this reason, to help your husbands. Because it's very easy for you to tell your husbands when they say you look beautiful, to, to shove it off, snicker or say, eh. please, you can be beautiful in appearance and old. It's true. Receive that from your husbands because they love you more every day. They're supposed to. Because my concern is that a husband not knowing it would stop selling you because you don't receive it. So receive it. I tell Kathy, she's, she's at the point of saying I have to say it. 
I said, that's fine. You don't have to believe it because I know it. I know you're beautiful. And so I don't care if you believe it or not. I know. So I'm good. I'm going to keep on telling you too. I'm going to convince her. At one point, I'm going to convince her, I hope. So here they have, they have done all of this and following the leadership of her husband. She now, then they, they're prospering in the land of Canaan, God's promise. This is the place. Here's where you're going to be. And then they, Lot, his nephew, is with him. They're both prospering. They're both prospering so much that Abram has to tell Lot, look, we got just too much stuff going on. Our herdsmen are, are fighting with one another over land. So you pick a place and you go there. I'm going to go the opposite direction. So he picks the place that ended up toward the territory of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Abram stayed where he was and said, okay, we'll be here. They continue prospering. He actually goes and has to rescue Lot because he got kidnapped. With He got caught up in all the king's wars around there. So they're going along. And now we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 15. Let's look at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will will be my heir. No offspring and a member. No offspring, no member of my household. And behold, the, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he continued in it. He believed the Lord and he, the Lord, counted it to Abram as righteousness. Verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord, how am I? How am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds, the prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall become, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a, in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down, it was dark, and behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Kadmonites, and the Hittites, and Perizzites, and Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Father, we ask that as we look at this covenant promise to Abram and then ultimately to Sarah, we, we ask that you would communicate your covenant promises to us that have been sealed in your son's blood. That we too might look upon the God who is faithful in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we have something very interesting and unique happening in chapter 15 with Abram. Here God has come to him and now it's been... It's been some time since chapter 12... Time has gone by here. Abram's been promised a great nation. Nothing's happening. And he's telling God that. God, nothing's happening around me. Uh, Eliezer of Damascus, who I picked up on the way here, is going to be my heir because I like him the most out of everybody. So what's going on here? And here God says, no, your son, your son will be that heir. And he brings him outside and has a little object lesson with him by looking up at all the stars. And we look up and see a few stars compared to a 
Abram saw that night because there were no street lights dimming the skies or preventing all the stars from being shown. He goes up there and sees more than can number. He said, if you're able to number them, Abram, but he can't number them. They're just too many. It's overwhelming. And what does he do in that moment? Abram believes God. Can you imagine looking up at the stars and he's saying, as many stars as you see are going to be your descendants. And Abram says, I believe that. In that moment, God counts it to him as righteousness. And God then, he, he seals this. He seals this promise that he's given Abram with a covenant. And he, he, inter, and he enacts this and he, he brings this covenant about by going to tell Abram, take all these animals and I want you, I want you to prepare them. Now, Abram would have known what this meant because back in, these, in the ancient Near East, they had a custom to whenever they had made a covenant, a promise with one another, they would actually take an animal and split it in half, cut it directly in half. And so we have here, Abram's told to do this. And then by night, this happened because it probably took him a long time to cut animals, three animals right in half. And what they would do is cut these animals and they'd lay them right in half. And what, what the covenanting parties would do is walk through the two halves of the animal walking through. And the promise they were making is we're making a promise, but it, if I don't fulfill this promise, you can cut me in half just like that animal on the ground. That was the level of the promise. And we have something of that in our modern wedding ceremonies as the groom's Family sits on one side and the bride's family sits on another and they walk in between. They're, they're promising one another, making vows, promises to one another. And they're symbolizing this has been who we are. But sadly, what we lack today is the, the meaning of a promise. And most of the time when we say I promise, it's not always accurate. But here, this is what Abram is told to do. And it's interesting that God calls for all the animals that were later on be instituted by Moses in the sacrificial system of God's people in Israel. The heifer, the ram, what was the other one? I've... The turtle dove, the pigeon, the goat, all of these God will, will then bring to Moses' mind and say, use these animals. So something, something interesting is going on. And it's more than just there's, there's some symbolism going on here. And I believe what's happening is that actually the gospel is being demonstrated to Abram in this moment. God's made a promise to him and the gospel is being preached to him. Like Paul tells the Galatians that the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. Where, where the, I just think there's an interesting aspect of what's happened here. These three animals are in line. And we look at the sacrificial system in Leviticus and, and the Mosaic tradition of these sacrifices. What do they symbolize? They symbolize Jesus himself. And now they're halved on the ground. The cow and the, the ram and the goat. And what did, what did, this is interesting, I just came, came to mind. Genesis 22, when Abraham goes and to sacrifice Isaac, they stop him. What do they find in the thorns? A ram. I think it's just a reminder. There's always a reminder that God's bringing in of what he's doing and the promises that he makes. Because this ram was there when God sealed this, this promise with this covenant. And then as, as Abram's sleeping, but seeing this, I believe, a smoking fire pot comes through. Now, this is more of an earthenware jar that you would cook in in those days. And it's, got, it's filled with smoke. It's smoking and smoke's coming out of it. And then a torch, a fire torch is coming behind it. And those are the ones that pass in between those halved animals and the birds that are pointing into one another. I believe symbolizing that God was telling Abram, this promise will be fulfilled by my son who will be severed for you. And it's not you that's going to do this. God himself walks down that middle aisle and says, be it done to me. As these animals, if I don't fulfill this promise. I think Abraham is seeing Jesus in this moment. Because uh, we look in Paul and 2 Corinthians said, we hold this treasure in what? Jars of clay. That's what Abraham, that's what Abram saw in this vision. And a smoking fire pot, him, smoke a lot of times, smoke and fire is a lot of times we see the symbolism of the Holy Spirit in that, where, where it's Jesus full of the Holy Spirit walking through those pieces saying, I'm going to die. But interestingly enough, he says, if I don't, he's going to die either way. He's going to die to fulfill the promise, not just die if he doesn't fulfill the promise. 
But these, this promise is what's being sealed in blood. This wasn't a sacrifice. This was a demonstration of what God will do. So we have, we have God promising Abram and then we have him sealing it with himself in his own blood. I believe pointing to his son's blood that will be shed for them. And then we have Sarai finding out about all this again from her husband. Hun, saw something today. I want to tell you about it. And she begins to hear all of this. And we've got to wonder that I think what she was thinking was, I believe it too. Sounds a little off, but I believe it too. And we find that from Hebrews chapter 11. She was, there was an aspect of her that she was also walking in faith and following her husband. But there was, what, what happens here now is that there's a delay in the promise being fulfilled. Because I'm sure she was looking, all right, here we go. Going to pop up pregnant anytime now. It's going to happen. It's just going to happen. This guy's got promise. And it's just waiting and waiting and nothing. And what do we do then? What is she doing then? But we have, as believers, we have promises. We too, as God's people, he has purchased for us the experience of blessing and transformation and peace because of the covenant that he has made with us through his son. Through his son Christ that we enact by faith, we access by faith, just like Abram did. He didn't follow a bunch of rules to cause this to happen for this righteousness. He said, God, I believe you. And we believe Jesus died in our place to satisfy God's wrath toward us so we could have life. We could be justified. We could be sanctified. We could be glorified by his grace, by that purchase. And we say, yes, God, I believe you. And there's that new heart that comes in. There's the there's the spirit that comes to live inside of us. And what we have to understand is that this when Christ died for us and we respond in faith. Through the drawing and the grace of God pulling us and drawing us and waking us alive from our, our deadness and sin. In that moment, all that Christ is and all that he has becomes ours. All that Christ is and all that he has becomes ours. We find that in Romans eight seventeen. We are heirs with Christ. We, too, as believers, have great and precious promises available to us. We have the promise of Jeremiah thirty-two forty that God will never stop doing good to us. God will never stop doing good. He never stop. He's looking to do good. He's looking to orchestrate good in our lives. And then in Hebrews 13, 5, we, we learn that he'll never leave us or forsake us. In Psalm 9, 10, he'll never turn his back on those who seek his face. We have some great and precious promises. But what happens when there's a delay? What happens when we... What happens when we have the reality that... Either we're not married and we know that God has promised marriage, but it hasn't come yet. What do we do when, when we ha- are married and we have an unsaved spouse and we, we believe that God has promised that our spouse will be saved and it, it's just taking a long time? Or what if we're thinking about marriages being restored and praying for marriages to be restored and it just it doesn't seem that nothing seems to be happening and every every natural external uh, sight is saying that it's never going to take place? How about children? The promise to have children. You believe that God has promised you that you will too, like Sarah, have children, but it's just not doesn't ever seem to be coming a reality. What what about children to be wayward children, the promise to bring them back, and unsaved children, the promise to save them? Oh, the hurt that happens in parents with unsaved children and wayward children. And we cry out to God and we believe we hear something of a, a yes to, to saving them and, or family members that we have and just not being saved and believe there's a promise that they will be saved. Or how about children is to be obedient? That's a promise. 
And you can look at your own kids and go, hey, this ain't ever going to happen. What's going on with these promises that, or possibly that maybe the burden of debt that God has promised that one day if you'd be diligent to do these things that you would be free from, but things keep on piling on and it doesn't seem to be. And we have an economic downturn and, and the job status then goes into question and we have a promise that God will provide for us. But we just don't know what's happening and, and schooling possibly where to go to school, what to study, how are we going to pay for it? I know God wants me to do that, but I'm just not sure of what's going to happen. But bodily healing, we have a promise maybe that we've received from the Lord that we, our bodies would be healed, but it's just not happening like we thought. How about, how about emotional, psychological healing? That we ask and ask and ask and say, God, please intervene. And this doesn't seem to be an answer. How about just deliverance from the sin that so easily entangles us? The sins that we've been struggling with for years, that we've asked, we've fasted, we've, we've had people lay hands on us, we have done everything we know to do, but this sin still is right there at our doors or on our lips or at our fingertips. We have promises that these will happen, but yet the gap between the promise and the reality seems to be broadening and widening and growing. What do we do in that moment? Well, what do we? Because in that moment, we actually are tempted to think that God's not good. And that's what the enemy used with Eve in the garden. Did God really say that? Is he really for your good? Well, he doesn't want you to be like him, so he must not be good. He must not be everything that he's telling you. But in those moments, we also are tempted to think that God's not good. But let's look at chapter 16 of Genesis and look at, at Sarai's response to a delay. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Abram, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong be done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your, to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. We find that Sarai is, in essence, putting her hands on the steering wheel of the car. It's being driven. Her husband... Nothing seems to be happening, and she starts to think big thoughts and big questions about what's going on. And, and what I think is, is happening is that she's beginning to internalize and put on herself the things that are not, not taking place. She's barren, uncontrollable fact. She actually says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children for you. And she might be thinking, after all, God didn't promise that I would have the son. He promised you. Abram, that you'd have the son, and, and which was a cultural experience to use when, because barrenness really was a symbol of, I'm trying to find a word to this, it was a symbol of scorn. When you had no children, you, it was scorn. That's why we see so often in the Old Testament, women crying out for a child because they were being scorned everywhere they went because they had no children. And so what was a common practice was that it, if, a woman had a servant, she would give that servant to her husband and literally the child would become hers because she, this, this servant, well, you're in my power, you're in my control and I'm your mistress. And so this child will be mine. And that happened quite frequently. And, and Sarah's looking, Sarah is looking around saying, okay, things aren't happening. And maybe, maybe God's against me. God didn't promise me. He promised my husband. So here, let's go ahead and fulfill it. And, and I'll just, you know, Abram will have his son. But then it turns around, doesn't work out like she had planned. Then Hagar looks at her and still scorns her and still says, you're no good. 
Because now she has a child and now Sarai does it. And, and then with the bitterness and anger that grows in Sarai's heart, blames her husband for doing what she asked him to do. And then also blames Hagar and sends her away, deals harshly with her. When, when we, we find when Sarai, when there's a delay, natural components in our minds begin to take over and convince us that if we do something that we can see to fulfill the promise, then it'll fulfill the promise rather than waiting by faith to what we can't see. And she's got all the factors that, that many people would, if she was in a counseling meeting, she'd probably, you know, she'd find her friends were saying, yeah, Sarai, I think it's your problem. I think you're just not going to have any kids. And then you just, you might need to give Hagar to, to Abram just so he has a son and you can't, you can't stand in his way. That's selfish of you. But yet we ladies, I believe, find themselves in Sarah's experience when the gap, the gap begins to grow. We start to take over the steering wheel. We start to reach over and say, all right, this car's not turning left yet and we needed to turn left 10 years ago. It's been that long. Actually, it's been 13 years. 10 years since the promise. Actually, no, it's been 10 years. And then it's going to be another 13, we're going to find out. But what happens when anxiety begins to grow? What happens when, when the feeling of loneliness takes over? Or really, the genuine feeling that God must not care about you. Because the promise is not yet fulfilled. And so there, maybe it's, it's probably sin in me. And, and God just, I'm not worthy enough. Or, or God just doesn't seem that I'm, God doesn't care. Something's wrong with me. It's, it's just not happening soon enough. And, and after all, God wants me to be happy. That's a very dangerous thought process to follow down. That's a rabbit trail that we don't want to go down because what ultimately we're saying is God doesn't want me to be uncomfortable in my life. And that's a very self-centered, that's a very self-centered thought and it's an accusation against God. Does God want you to be happy? Of course. But your definition of happiness might not be his definition of happiness. Our definition of happiness is usually American because we want everything to be easy and comfortable and painless. But we're finding that sometimes when God... It has a delay or maybe allows affliction or suffering in our life. We begin to throw our hands against that and say, this can't be God. He wants me to be happy. But is he using, as we heard in the word that was given, is he using affliction to make you happy? We'll see that in a second. God doesn't want me to live this way. Maybe not feeling appreciated, feeling that you give and give and give and there's no return. And, and may that be from a husband or from friends or even from children. Feeling that everyone else has just moved on and maybe forgotten about you and what you're experiencing. Ian Duguid has a wonderful book called Living in the Gap Between Promise and Reality. And uh, this is in your notes. He says, an attitude of impatience and distrust is dangerous. You are eager to see events unfold and have grown weary of waiting for God to act. You're anxious to see the way ahead instead of walking by faith. You may want to see every obstacle. You want to see every obstacle removed immediately. Perhaps you long to be married or have a child or progress to a more fulfilling level in your career. Yet you seem stuck at a dead end with no apparent prospect of seeing your hopes and dreams realized. What should you do when the promises of God seem to seem slow in being fulfilled? Certainly, you may need to examine your own motives and obedience and to search your heart for sin and sins. Sometimes the desires of our hearts are turned in entirely wrong directions. But what do you do when it seems that the desires of your heart are good and proper, yet they remained as unfulfilled as ever? You must continue to wait for God's timing. God is not slow, but neither is he in a hurry. We all want God to be on our timetable, right? We, we want everything to happen now, yesterday, actually. God, can this take place yesterday, please? Thank you. Just to make my life a little less complex because, God, you know I have a really complex life and there's a lot of drama going on. So, God, hurry. Hurry now. Do now. But when we're setting ourselves up, actually, for, I think, taking over the steering wheel results 
in anger and bitterness toward God and the people around you. Because you're looking to them to help in fulfilling the promise and things aren't happening. We can't expect God to be in a hurry. We, we can't be hurrying him in our prayers and in our actions. And we can't be giving him all the reasons of why he should act now. Because really we have all the right reasons of why he should do it now. But he doesn't do that. And we mustn't try to force God's promises to come about. What Sarai did was manipulate the circumstance to see something happen. It's not happening. It's been 10 years. Nothing's happening. 10 years is a long time. Nothing is taking place. And yet, she says, now I'm going to take my hands on the steering wheel. I'm going to try to make this thing happen. And the only result was anger and bitterness. Because she didn't wait for the Lord's perfect timing and didn't understand possibly how God was using the delay period. God's not slow in keeping his promises as we define slowness, but he's patient with us. Let's look at chapter 17 where God confirms his presence to Abram and Sarai. Look at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and said, and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Look down at verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Here we have God coming and interrupting. Now everything with chapter 16, 13 years has passed between chapter 16 and chapter 17 of Genesis. It's not as quick as when we read it and think it's just happening next, the next day. This is 13 years that's, that's waiting again. Now, and now Sarai's got to be watching Ishmael, Hagar's son, growing up and still asking the same questions. Me? Him? What? Maybe still being scorned? Still being scorned from the people around that she's got no children and, and here Ishmael. And at one point, Abraham says to, to God, well, can Ishmael be who you want him to be? Uh, the, the one that you're telling me about. And he says, no, he clarifies. And, and sometimes, and this is what's happening, I believe, in Sarah's life. There's a confirming effect of his presence. But what's happened in that delay is, is God has prepared Sarai for this moment. And two things are taking place. One, God declares himself in a new way to Abraham and Sarah. He says, Abram, I am God Almighty. That's the first time in the Bible that we have the name of God, El Shaddai. El Shaddai. The very first time. God Almighty. What he's doing is directing them upward. Though you've waited now 23 years. I am God. I am God Almighty. I am in control. And I am going to do good to you. I am going to bless you. But think about this. Could they have received that way back in Genesis 12? 23 years ago. See, I think what we don't realize a lot of times is that God uses the delay. He uses the affliction and the suffering of our lives to do what? To get us to open our eyes and see him in a new way. Not that he's new. We have a greater revelation of who he is. And God, because I literally think that if, if God showed us all at once who he was, we would combust. We would die. We wouldn't be able to contain it. We wouldn't be able to understand it. Moses said, nobody can see the face of God and live. But God is, is now through that delay process, preparing Abram and Sarai for the revelation of himself. 
And I believe when they heard that, ah, oh, I think there was a relief. Because look, they're still exercising faith. They're still saying, no, God, I'm going to believe you. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to believe you. Here, Abram's now 99 years old. Sarah, he's 10 years younger than him. And, and all hope looks naturally to be gone. But yet there's something else. There's something that God's working in them to see of himself. And the second thing that happens is that he leaves something with them. Look at Kent Hughes says this in his commentary on Genesis. He says, Moses intends that the reader understand that Moses wrote Genesis. That's why he's saying this. Moses intends that the reader understand that for some 13 years now, a cloud of domestic gloom and growing darkness about the promise had hung over the tents of Abram. It had been 23 years since the initial promise. And now with the bleakness of the last 13 years, the promise seemed more distant than ever. God had given Abram and Sarai a lot of time to think about his sin and his lapse of faith and the living consequences. God was growing the patriarch's faith. Great days lay ahead, but Abram did not know it. How often is that true for us that we think everything is going to be nothing but only to find out years later, perhaps, maybe months later, we find out how God was working something very unique. And usually, usually when we, I think we should, when we experience affliction or suffering in our lives, when we come to the season where that, that chapter has closed, we should be able to look back at that and say, God, I, I see you in a whole new way. We find that in Job, where Job's biggest, his biggest complaint was, how can a man be in the right before God? And his friends were arguing, saying, well, you're not right. You're sinful. And he's saying, no, I have ex- I've been faithful, I believe. And if I could stand before God, I would tell him I've been faithful. But obviously, I'm not in the right with him. So how can it be? A- and who can be the mediator? He's asking for Jesus in that moment. But then God, in the end of Job, God never answers the question, how can a man be in the right before him? He just displays God Almighty. In that little section, El Shaddai is referenced 31 times for Job. A reminder of, I am the one who can make a man in the right before me. I am the one. But yet, in in the season of affliction or suffering, and I'm not, there are seasons of affliction and suffering that are brought on by our own sin, but I'm talking about those things that maybe are not brought on by sin. That are the result of living in a fallen world with fallen bodies and things don't go right and work right. How do we respond to those? Do we see the work of God and the fingerprints of God working in our lives in order to refine us and mold us so he can leave something in us and about us? God is elevating Abram and and ultimately Sarah's faith. He's been preparing them. He's been refining them during this process. They haven't driven around in circles like we always, we reference when things aren't going. I'm just driving, I feel like I'm driving around in circles. I don't, I just don't feel like I'm going anywhere. We have to realize that it's not so much about the destination, about being who we're supposed to be in order to get to the destination. We don't focus on where we need to be. We don't focus on the, in essence, we don't focus on the promise. We focus on the God who's the one that will change us and fill us and satisfy us. And watch the promise, the promise be fulfilled, but maybe not in a way that we're defining. Maybe in a way that he's orchestrating and putting together. The waiting has refined them. And God often uses time as the heat to refine us for his glory. And we don't like time. We want quick time. We want faster devices and faster gadgets. And, and we want planes to go faster now. It's, it's just two hours to get from here to there. It's, not, it's too long. We want things to be quick, but we need to understand that God, God's, he's declaring himself in such a way that with God Almighty pointing to his sovereignty and his power, his omnipotence, that it actually is providing a strong, it's providing a strong tower and a, and a, a safe haven for Abraham and Sarah. Though the promise is not yet fulfilled, come into me, be comforted by me. He's prepared him, prepared them for this. And, and then something enormous, I think, takes place with the name changes. See, because what, what's interesting with these name changes is that 
Abram, and, and it's just little nuances that are changed. It's not real big meanings that have been changed. But still, changing a name in the ancient Near East was enormous. Uh, remember when Jesus changed uh, Simon's name to Peter. You shouldn't be, you're not going to be called Simon, you're going to be called Cephas because you're going to be the rock. And that's a rock. And that was huge for them. So then, and instead of just calling him Peter, he was Simon Peter. He was Simon the rock. And so we, the name changes are significant. But here they were, they were lifelong significant because usually you name somebody and they capture the name by which is what we use nicknames today was much more. Because sometimes what the parents would do was name their child for how the child would live. Believing that this would be the, how the child would live. And the declaration of this child's life would be this. We find that as, as Joseph and Moses have... Joseph names his first son, God has prospered me in my affliction. That's what his name was. So there's a constant reminder of who God is. And even Isaac, you know what Isaac means? He laughs. So remember Abram and Abraham and Sarah laughed. But what does God do? God says, your son's name is going to be the very thing to remind you that I am El Shaddai. Oh, what a God who does things and reminds us and refines us so we can, one, see him in a larger way. But two, our names can be changed. When their names were changed, something interesting happened. Just one consonant was added to their names. Even in the Hebrew, one consonant. But that consonant... Is the consonant that's found in God's name. The L-O-R-D, Lord, in all caps in your Bible, is four consonants in Hebrew. And it's debatable on how you even pronounce them because it's four consonants. And really, ancient Hebrew and ancient Israel wouldn't even say the name of God. Because it was too holy of a name to even come out of man's mouth. But it's that, it's the uh, Y-H-W-H. And, and which has now come to be known as Yahweh or Yehovah. There's, there's a different, it's debatable on how you pronounce that. But that ah, that H, is what God adds to Abram and Sarai. He says, no longer are you going to be known earthly. Now you're going to be known by me. Oh, how sweet of the Lord. What he does, he marks them. He puts his imprint in them and in their name so they can know it for the rest of their lives. And everybody coming up to them will know for the rest of their lives. But what do they look back on? They look back on the initial promise. They look back on the covenant that God made with them to fulfill the promise. They look back to the the picture of Christ purchasing that name for them. Dear friends. Ladies, Jesus has died to purchase for you the mark of God. But what what needs to be understood and grow in our understanding is that God uses affliction and suffering to mark us. Uses affliction and suffering to put his fingerprint upon us that we, we walk differently, we sound different, we don't process through information the same way. Why? Because something of God is on the inside of me now. And oh, how we can look across this church and see so many of you ladies that are, are exhibiting this now. You have, you have gone through affliction and suffering. But when we look at you, we see God. Mothers laboring with younger children. I see this in my own wife. Calls of, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't school them. It's too many. I'm not being a good enough mom to Beth and Owen. And I want to tell God's marking you. He's marking you. So your girls and your son will be able to stand one day and say, Mom is awesome because we see God in her. We see God in her. If you're walking an extended season of singleness and you've been, you feel you've been promised marriage, God's marking you now. He's marking you to where your husband will be able to say, It's God. I see God in you all over the place. I see Christ. 
laboring with children who are wayward, children who are rebellious, and, and children who quite honestly think you're weird for coming to this church. God's marking you. Walking in a season of, of bodily failure. And looking up and saying, God, I'd rather die than do this again. Than go through this again. Than even be prayed for again. God's marking you. He's marking you. This feelings of anxiety, this feelings of loneliness, the feelings of, God, where are you? God must not care. And, and God's moved on from me. No, he's marking you. He's marking you so you will always know you walk differently now on the other season of affliction and suffering. You walk differently now because you have God in you. And he's marked you in a particular way that you're reminded of that. I'm not the same person. And everybody around you gets to see that as well and gets to say, you're not the same person. Something's different about you. But the greatest aspect is this, that when God marks us here and broadens and expands our capacity through affliction and suffering, that refining process, it opens us up to experience God more here so we can be more enjoyed with him in heaven. Everything we're walking through, every, every joy, every failure, every picking up after we've sinned for the 17,000th time and pressing on and looking forward to God and every walking through affliction and suffering that maybe God is not, uh, our sin's not brought on, but God's allowed. All of that is doing what? It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Everything we're walking through is to, one, get us to see God greater than we've ever seen Him before. So our lives can be affected by that. But then what? So we can enjoy Him more in heaven. Look at this quote from Thomas Watson in his book, All Things for Good. Afflictions work for good as they make way for glory. Not that we merit glory, but they prepare for it. As plowing prepares the earth for a crop, so afflictions prepare and make us meet for glory. The painter lays his gold upon dark colors, so God first lays the dark colors of affliction, and when he lays and then he lays the golden color of glory. The vessel is the first season is first season before wine is poured into it. The vessels of mercy are first seasoned with affliction, and then the wine of glory is poured in. Thus we see afflictions not are not prejudicial, prejudicial, but beneficial to the saints. We should not so much look at the evil of affliction as the good, not so much as the dark side of the cloud as the light. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India, beginning latter part of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. She would actually go into the Hindu temples and steal girls who had been married off to the gods, which a lot of times meant prostitution. She would go in there and she would capture them in her cloak that she'd wear and she'd bring them out and bring them to an orphanage that she named Donavur. But she wrote several books and what she would teach the girls all the time is that God... He's a refiner and he refines us just like a silversmith would refine a piece of silver and, he, and put in the fire. That silversmith, that iron worker knows how long to put the object into the fire to get it to the point of being moldable but not breakable. And she told the girls all the time, God does that with you. He does that with you in a way that he puts you in the fire. He's not going to leave you in there to break you. He's going to leave in there to make you moldable because the outcome is he wants to see his reflection in what he's working with. May we take heart. May we take joy. May we take courage in how God uses affliction in our lives to see his reflection in us. I believe to finish this uh, Philippians 3... An aspect of what Paul asks in, in this chapter is very interesting. In verse 10, well, let me start a little sooner. We'll do verse 10. 
that I may know him. He's talking about knowing Christ as the ultimate thing. Everything else is lost. It's rubbish. But he wants to know Christ and be found in him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What I, what I believe Paul is saying here is not, I need to suffer in order to be accepted. I think what he's saying is that I may know the depth of Christ's sufferings to understand more of what he did for me on the cross. How much he suffered for my sake to one, satisfy God's wrath toward me because of my sin to forgive my sin and then to purchase these promises that we get to walk in because of his death we share in his sufferings not to merit glory we share in his sufferings to understand him to know him this this El Shaddai that came to comfort his people in an earthen jar so they would be his forever Let's stand up together. I believe there's an aspect of what God seeking to communicate this morning that I, I tend to think that when, when God changes Sarah's name, he changes it to a princess of his own making, of his own character. I believe the Lord would, would want that to communicate that whatever the season of life you find yourself in it's your own coronation it's your own princess story but a princess that's defined found and wrapped up enthralled captured by Christ alone no matter what the season I believe the Lord would want to minister to you this morning in a particular way is this that I'm going to ask for you to come up and find a place and, and uh, we sometimes this is called an altar though it's not a super spiritual altar it's more of a symbol of I'm coming and laying down something so I can take up Christ and leave a different person so I believe there would be some of you that would would just want to interact with the Lord. The Lord wants to interact with you. And, and, and this would be my encouragement that when you come up, because I know oftentimes this happens to all of us, that whenever we come to a response time, to an altar of sorts, we, we spend more time waiting for somebody to come pray for us than interacting with the Lord. And we get very confused into, well, nobody likes me because nobody's coming to pray with me. I, I would, so this morning we're going to come and pray and nobody's going to come pray for you. So you can interact with the Lord. As we worship, come. Come to this place as a demonstration of what God possibly is already capturing and accomplishing in your heart to change you to where you can have new eyes to look at the familiar things of, of your life and the familiar season that's been going on for many years. Or maybe you're just into it thinking, oh Lord, is this going to be too long? That's being a wife or a mother, desiring those things, standing in the gap for loved ones who are not saved, caring for your parents who need a lot of time and attention. God's marking you. Lord, we want you. God, would we have in our hearts this morning a revelation of God Almighty? El Shaddai the one that that is the powerful one that is the sovereign one who cares for us 
does good to us and for us because of Christ. And Lord, I ask that you would indeed mark us this morning. Mark us. May your name become intertwined with who we are. Please.